0: In this episode of the Smart Community Podcast, I have a brilliant chat with Sabrina Chikori, the founder of the Brisbane Tool Library. Sabrina tells us about her background in environmental economics and her passion for creating a sustainable society, as well as what sparked her interest in smart community concepts. We discuss why democratizing the economy is so important and the need for other economic models and using other metrics other than just GDP. Sabrina tells us about the Brisbane Tool Library and how it fits into the sharing economy, as well as what she's learnt through the process. We explore the concepts of access versus ownership, abundance versus scarcity, and the balance between localization and globalisation. We finish our chat discussing the emerging trends of alternative economic models and the ways to structure our community. As always, we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns and smart cities. It's where we live, work and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The smart community podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, Sabrina. How are you today? Hi Zoe. Hi everyone. I'm so excited to have you. Um, we've been trying to chat for a while now, and I'm glad that we were able to find a time during this very crazy time.
1: Yeah, thanks for the patience. And yeah, sometimes it's just about <laughs> finding the right time and the right moment. So I'm really honored to be here.
0: Oh, thank you. Let's jump straight in. And can you tell us about your background and what you're passionate about?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm 28 and I think I've been active, you know, as an active citizen or as an activist or whatever that active uh, uh, definition means in um, the common sense of it. Since I was probably 14, 13, I remember, you know, going to my first protest or going to meetings with other NGOs and trying to learn and to trying to act really, you know, for a sustainable society. So, since, you know, it has been a long journey, and I think I probably redirected my interest from pure environmental uh, issues or challenges towards more um, a need for a new economic system that includes a social and ecological uh, benefits. So I think, that, you know, my journey probably can be summarized <laughs> in, uh, with that purpose, you mm-hmm. know, of creating a sustainable society, both in terms of socially fair and ecologically sustainable. Otherwise when I'm not doing, you know, my trying to be active or trying to have an impact in society, well I have a bachelor in science in biology, master in environmental economics. So also in my studies I try to link the pure scientific background to some economic background as well. And at the moment I'm doing a PhD at the University of Queensland looking at how can we transition toward zero packaging food system and how we can redesign food system within a new economy. Yeah, wow. Sounds like you are a busy person and very an active
0: person. And I and I love that.
1: Thank you. Well it's funny though because you know I've been questioning a lot of them I think the word of, you know, being an activist or an active person, because a lot of people said, oh, wow, great, you know, all these activists. I think that everyone is actually, you know, an active citizen. The main difference, I would say, is that when people define themselves as activists, probably because they have the knowledge and they understand how impactful their actions are, they're conscious about what they're doing and the impact. But at the end of the day, I really think that everyone, you know, listening to us or in our network has uh, an impact. It's just, you know, the person is aware or not of that impact.
0: Mm, yeah, it's a really interesting way to think about it. I think, you know, in our communities, you might have uh, an impact in with the work you're doing or, you know, the community group you're involved in. You wouldn't necessarily call yourself an activist, but you can make a difference in, you know, what seems to be quite a small area, but actually overall can be really powerful. So yeah, I think that's it's a really interesting way to think about it. and I think it's really important to smart communities. It's it's actually about, you know, getting involved in the things that we want to get involved in, you know, what getting part of that conversation. I think it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, let's talk more about you and tell us what sparked your interest. And I know you're not specifically in this kind of smart community space. Well, I actually think that you are. But I'm really keen to hear more about your research, your studies, but your your particular interest in that changing our economic system to suit this more environmentally friendly way of doing things.
1: Yeah. Sure. So I was reflecting, you know, just before the interview about smart communities, and I think, you know. Too often I, I think we hear about smart community maybe, you know, linked to tech solution or technological features that will improve our cities, our communities, our lives. So I'm probably very distant from that way of understanding smart communities. And it's interesting because you know, smart communities, people put a lot of emphasis on smart. As the new thing, you know, as a trendy word, as a, a research and development area that needs to be developed, but I probably would like more to put the emphasis on the community word, which seems very, you know, uh, easy word, uh, a very well known. But I think that since probably you know globalization accelerated in the seventies and eighties, probably we, we lost a little bit that understanding of community that understanding of belonging to somewhere or something to you know it can be a a geographical community or a subculture or a digital community but then more recently you know with uh, COVID-19 health and economic crisis I think that that word community came back in the narrative you know came back in, in the discussion of people that, you know, they were forced to be locked down or restricted in travels. And um, and obviously, we saw that globalization has been impacted by the current uh, crisis. So that community itself became really important. And I think if I should define smart community for me, I would probably say that it's a community designed and organized. So the organized part is as important as designing it in a way. It, to enhance, I don't know, social and ecological well-being. Mm -hmm. But it's more about the human connection and not, you know, the technology that is um, linking a community together. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and, and we talk a lot about that on this podcast around how we really ensure that we keep it at that human focus and that people focus. And, you know, why I shifted from smart city to smart community is so that that community aspect would be emphasised. And I think, you know, smart is the word that I haven't found a better one yet. And I don't mind it, to be honest. It does get buzz. It's, you know, it's a bit of a buzz word at the moment. But I feel like if we can use our latest thinking and use our latest technology to enhance that human experience and in a way that's not like, I guess, What's the word tokenistic or like, Oh, isn't this awesome for this level of the population that can afford to do it? I think that's when we can call it real smart community because we can, we're actually making a difference to people's lives that, you know, have the most at stake, right? If we don't get this right. And I think that's really important. And how we kind of shape the future that we want post COVID, post, you know, everything that's happening is actually a united front where we can work together. To bring this stuff to reality, let's go back to you again. And and we talked. A little, we've already answered the question of like, what is a smart community? Uh, but why do you think that this is important? Um, particularly, uh, you know, linking back to the work that
1: you do. Well, I think okay, community. I think it it must become the next the next metric. You know, we've been uh, in the last fifteen years that I experienced directly. You know, focused a lot. Globalization and you know, an economic growth, and uh, and probably we lost a little bit, you know, the um, touch with why our economy and our society is organized as it is. How do we organize things uh, and everything? So I think my work at the moment with the Brisbane Tool Library, but also with my PhD and in general with other projects that I'm involved is, you know, we hear about a new economy, right? But how does that new economy look like and I think that now more than ever we need to understand and democratize so that it's really important we need to democratize the economy. Democratize is in a sense that we need to understand it first in order to be able to shape it so I'm part and very you know active trying to promote this economic degrowth or called economic post growth a view of the world which means so basically our current economy is based on economic growth. So the only purpose of our economy is to grow constantly in time, but obviously that's not possible uh, on a finite planet, but it's also not possible to keep perpetuating social injustice and so on. At the moment, our governments uh, around the world, all of them measure economic success, economic prosperity, just basing it on GDP gross domestic product and what that index really measures is just a monetary transaction you know of good and services so I think you know uh, the post growth movement is trying to say so first of all from a macroscopic perspective how can we measure what really matters you know how can we measure social well-being how can we measure ecological well-being because from the moment that we decide to use a different index to measure prosperity and to define prosperity, then all our policies or our businesses are going to try to work towards that common goal, right? So at the moment, unfortunately, when you know uh, things are not going well, well, we cut on a lot of sectors to implement others just with the goal to increase GDP. So I think we need to understand what that GDP is really measuring. Just to give an example, if someone is not familiar with all these uh, terms or or this topic, if our economy is not going well, if it's not growing, we can do car accidents. We can get sick, you know, by getting sick, uh, eating unhealthy, getting into pharmaceutical drugs, etc. We are actually growing our economy, you know, so sending our children, friends, family to war, starting a war that grows our economy. So when we start understanding which activity actually, you know, add to that plus of uh, GDP, we can understand that uh there's something fundamentally, you know, wrong with how we measure our economy and therefore the um, well-being of our communities. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, yeah, so, you know, a lot of unpaid work, a lot of volunteers, a lot of caring work, uh, a lot of ecological services are not accounted for. You know, as they say, a standing forest has no value, but if we cut that forest and make furniture out of it, well, that has a value. If we ride our bike to the market, the local market, and use our reusable bags and come back, we are not actually increasing economic growth. We are not contributing to that economic growth. In order to contribute to economic growth, it would be better to use our car, you know, with obviously petrol in it, use uh, single-use plastic um, bags, et cetera, et cetera, and maybe get some food in supermarkets that come from overseas. So I think understanding how our economy is measured is actually the key role to understanding where we want to go. And that is just to set a goal, you know, a common goal. And then, well, then there's the the hard part is where do we actually start the work? And I think that work needs to be started with. And within communities. So I don't think that change can happen from a top-down level. And I don't think that it should happen from a bottom-up level in sense of individual responsibility. So community is really the agent of change, I think. Mm. So interesting.
0: I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on, you know, we're measuring GDP, we're doing these things. If we are gonna to flip to another that we're measuring what are some of those key metrics based on your experience that we should be measuring
1: yeah so there are already like some indexes out there Mm. that could be used you know the gross happiness index the ecological footprint and so many others probably there is lack of a standard index at the moment Uh, but you know just think that can be measured whatever that you know i'm not talking now just about the index but what else can we measure, right? Mm. So at the moment, we measure productivity, uh, consumption, and that you know, shows how our nations are working well, our nation are growing fast. But what if we measure instead of productivity, free time? What if the well-being of a nation would be based on how much free time people have? You know, it's the same thing as public transport and cars it seems that uh, the well-being of a nation is measured on how much uh, access there is to public transport, right? So developing countries, I don't even like to call developing countries, global south countries, still lack of infrastructure and transport, etc. So usually, you know, cities measured in terms of access to public transport, etc. And that makes a great city, a livable city, a uh, high quality of life. So I think You know, if we measure how much free time people actually have, that, for example, would change a lot of things. You know, we would, for example, use that time to cook from, you know, raw material instead of uh, manufactured, packaged food. We would have time to repair, to mend, to build, to create, because ultimately the core of a nation is made out of the cultural inputs that community and people come with. So if our nations are just based on productivism and consumerism, where then we are lacking of making real value to humanity.
0: Hmm. Mm, so interesting. And I think that's really an important point. And like I, I I talk a lot about, you know, when we're talking about technology, a lot of people are talking about how, you know, we can be more productive with technology, et cetera, et cetera. Which are key points, and you know, for say a local government, it pays to be more efficient, more productive internally. So then there's more resources available to do other things. But I think another key point is actually being able to buy back leisure time. Can we use technology? Well, not even just technology. Obviously, that be a, is a key component. But if you're not using it to buy back your leisure time, you're using it essentially to do more. You can be doing more work but then our paycheck might increase. But yeah, what does that do for our social fabric, our community ties, our family time, our leisure time? And I think that's really important because we do measure our success on a societal level on productivity in this country. And yeah, I, I even like, even when I called you busy earlier, I don't really use that word. I don't know why it came out of my mouth, to be honest, um, because I don't, think that we should measure things based on our busyness because we can be very busy, but what's what's our quality of life like and what are we doing to change that for ourselves and for our communities?
1: Yeah, sure, and you said it, right? Unfortunately, there's a lot of emphasis on technology and sometimes it seems like the ultimate goal and people forget that technology should be just a tool for something. And unfortunately, that's what the capitalistic system promised that you know with more technology we would actually be able to have a better quality of life the reality is that more technology we have more we work just to afford to get that technology but don't get me wrong i'm not against technology and that's you know we're doing this interview using you know the development mm-hmm. in the sector but also for example in the environmental movements i'm always very critical because there's a call for renewable energies and I think it's important and I think you know uh, the energy sector is long overdue (laughs) to shift towards something more sustainable especially in Australia that has a a full potential for solar and so on but sometimes I like to provoke or challenge because I think even in the environmental movement we need to be more critique of you know what we advocate for and I think that renewable energy is not the solution (laughs) the solution is Trying to understand why we need that energy and what we need that energy for because we can have every square meters of Australia with a solar panel and keep up with this productive system but then what are we having those solar panels for? Mm-hmm. so and it's interesting you know to shift from the conversation from technological solution to actually systemic solutions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like understanding the demand, the why, you know, similar with mobility, right? It's like, well, yes, we could build a new road or we can put a new bus and give people access, but actually understanding why, why are people moving like that? What are some of those things? What can we do to shift the demand or understand first why it's the case? And I, and we were talking before we started recording about um, my fellowship and traveling around and which is ironic that I was flying around in a plane. Don't get me wrong, I'm not lost on that irony. But actually a lot of my report and a lot of my communication around that was understanding the why and continually asking why and who we're doing this for and, you know, the purpose of this rather than just going, oh, cool, now I've got an autonomous vehicle. Where can I put this? Where is the problem? or not even the problem. I've got a solution, now let me put it somewhere so I can cut a ribbon or do uh, whatever. But I think that's so important that we need to understand that the systemic issues, the why behind why we're doing things. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Tell us about Brisbane Tool Library. Mm,
1: Two years in which I was uh, semi-unemployed, I was doing casual jobs, at that time, I came to Australia in 2015, I finished, I did a master's degree here. And after finishing it, I found myself a little bit in that space in which I didn't want to work for, you know, um, big companies that didn't match my values. And I, could, I struggled to find a meaningful job. And at that same time, obviously, you know, I, I, one day I just decided, well, I'm advocating for change. And I've been involved in really many, many organizations. At, at that point, I was working with former Minister of the Environment, Stephen Miles. who introduced the ban in single plastic bags. But I could see that a lot of change was... It was expected a lot from individuals to change, you know, we and we still do. We still expect individuals to do their own bread and to cycle and not to travel and all of this. And I do think obviously that uh, change starts in our daily life, and we are all responsible for that. But I also think that probably if we want to catalyze that change, we need to do it with the community and At that point, after you know writing a book chapter and a few other things, I realized that we are inundated by information, right? We know what's happening from a climate point of view. we know how we are destroying the ecosystems, we know about all the social injustice, we see it, we read about it. So I thought, well, you know, writing and just advocating for something is probably not enough. And that's where the idea of the Brisbane Tool Library came. I just really put together that, okay, the agent of change is community. So we need to start something uh, with and within the community. We need to include social and environmental aspects And one goal was also, and it is still to, you know, create jobs. So the Brisbane Tool Library is really like a book library. People can borrow power tools, hand tools, camping gear, kitchen appliances, uh, kayaks, uh, Christmas decoration, Christmas trees. So basically all those items that sometimes uh, we have at home, but they're underutilized. And um, it's a way to, you know, create and democratize also access to that sharing economy in a way that everyone can, you know, have access to these items, borrowing them and saving uh, obviously money because, well, for the price of basically one tool, people can access thousands of them. They can save space at home. And ultimately, we could reduce the ecological footprint by consuming less, you know, virgin resources needed to produce all these items that at the end they are not even fully utilised. So since we've been um, growing, uh, developing and having a pretty substantial impact, if I could say, in Brisbane, which probably that is uh, also the the fuel that kept us going, I guess. And uh, since 2018, we've been... um, located at the state Library of queensland so we are the first and only to library in Australia and one of the few in the world to be in a public library there are few in the US and I think the importance for me to be in a public library was a little bit to reclaim back also that circular economy sharing economy concept within a public space because I think that all those um, trendy terms have been a bit monopolized by Big corporation or in the private sector, and the community has been left out from actually interacting and co creating these circular economy schemes so well that wasn't a, a short description of the two library, but <laughs> that what pushed me to start it at least
0: I love it I love it so Tell us some of the things you've learned along the way. Like, what things really surprised you? Like, the uptake of, I guess, maybe certain items or some of the other things that really surprised you about, you know, when you started this business?
1: Yes. Um, well, first of all, one very, <laughs> very basic thing that I learned is actually the names of the tools. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because people think that I'm a tool person. No, I'm definitely not. And we have. You know, we, through the project, we had probably 60 plus volunteers when we were open back in March. You know, we were a big, big team of um, motivated people that every week would work on this project. And I was definitely the less skilled one. So, which was so well, first of all, I didn't know the name of the tools but uh, in English, but I probably didn't even know them in my mother tongue. So that was (laughs) definitely going out of my comfort zone. But beyond that that personal thing, (laughs) there's definitely a lot of things that I learned and probably a lot of those things I've been thinking about, you know, now that we were a bit in this lockdown situation and we had probably more time to just um, self-reflect. But one thing that I... And probably that's why we, you know, we are popular or more or less popular in Brisbane because i think what we failed as environmental movement during the years is to actually give an alternative uh, an alternative economic model that could actually work or genuine alternative business models or or businesses in general that could actually you know offer the same convenience the same uh, uh, belonging to community and stuff but yeah i think you know the environmental movement And I'm being very critical, you know, but also on my own work during the years is that we've always been one step behind the status quo, you know, conservation projects and restoration of uh, national parks and so on. Don't get me wrong. They're really important. and, And I'm an ecologist myself, but it's always like trying to act on the symptoms. You know, the environmental movement, unfortunately, still now, we are always just treating the symptoms. Well, we actually have to shift towards the the cause of the problem, which is redesigning uh, the system, which is based on economic growth, as I explained. So what I realized is that a lot of people that borrow the tool library, they never heard like terms like circular economy or sustainability. They all come from different backgrounds. I mean, most of them, they don't define themselves as greenies or sustainable people. And I know that because... <laughs> Some of them, um, actually two people, once they came in and uh, one of these users used to come every two weeks and one day told me, I really enjoy, you know, this service and I really love the project, but I'm not an environmentalist. So for me, defining himself out of that category showed me that that was okay. I I don't mind, you know, people Mm -hmm. branding themselves, but it showed me that, If it wasn't for the ecological purpose, it was because that alternative, in this case, very small economic uh, alternative, just made sense. I think our challenge now as a generation is probably to think, okay, we know the problem, we know that capitalism... That fuels that economic growth and aim just at maximizing capital and profit for shareholders is not working. We, we know that you know, the generation younger than us is even advocating more for value driven social enterprises and businesses. Now we need to be coherent and really try to be bold and inventive about which other business model we can do and how we can redesign those transactions that before they were just monetary transactions. Mm. So I think uh, in a small you know sense, we we are trying to provide that alternative economic model, and that's probably mm. <laughs> the biggest uh, win I have so far. No, I love that. And I
0: really I just want to commend you on your, I don't want to say bravery, but you really when i I've seen you around and you know online mostly you do really inspire me because you're working really within your values. And yeah, I I really admire everything you're doing. So thanks so much for
1: sharing that. Thank you, Zoe. Much appreciated.
0: (laughs) Okay, let's talk about the future. What are the emerging trends that people aren't talking about enough? I mean, I think we've talked about a lot of them just in this podcast. So yeah, any other, you know, what trends that we're not talking about enough?
1: Maybe just to continue on what I was just saying, you know, about the alternative economic model or way to structure communities. I think that we really need, you know, to take seriously this, this kind of sharing economy. And when I say sharing economy is really like, it's more, you know, refer to the commons of commoning or what can we have in common? How can we access resources and that's going to be really, really important because we have a, you know, an increasing population, but we also have you know, an increasing middle class in a lot of countries and we're consuming way too, too many resources that our planet boundaries can offer. So I think the smart communities, going also back to the beginning of the conversations, should really think, how can we live in abundance? Which seems a stupid question, but capitalism is based on scarcity, right? Uh, they try to, to create needs that we actually don't even have to sell us something so that the machine can keep working and capital can keep increasing. But if we design our communities and our cities around a sharing economy, a sharing of resources, sharing of skills, so they don't even have to be, you know, assets or products, then in that case, we're going to have access and having access to something without having the material ownership of it, that would really change our way of living. So just to give an example, obviously people borrow tools, they don't have to buy them. But when I say access is also, you know, we saw a shift, we don't buy any more DVDs. We just want to access a movie. You know, So we are having, you know, more and more access to music. So that access is being translated and, and that's where I think at least my work in the future would like to continue is how can you translate that access that now is very digital to an access that is more materialistic in the sense, how can we get things in the hands of people so that we don't need to buy them? And having that access, I think you would have really... I mean, obviously, I can't predict the future and more studies needs to be done, but I can see that giving access rather than ownership, well, we can reduce the ecological footprint of individuals and communities, but probably we can also reduce inequality across cities? Because if you think about it, you know, a lot of, unfortunately, the consumeristic culture in which I grew up, you know, with in Europe and uh, and that we are still in, you know, is based on the status quo, is based on ownership. So what if we can give access to, you know, families across the cities to the same thing? You know, we have like camping gear, uh, kayaks, snorkeling gears. And what if every corner would have a sharing hub? I'm not saying a tool library specifically. It can be anything, you know. We can really probably flatten that inequality. People can't uh, buy things, but everyone can actually have the use rights to that stuff. So um, with that comes, you know, I think that the future must be local and localization is a key feature, at least for me. And by localizing the economy, obviously, you know, we we don't want to give up all the convenience and great things that globalization uh, gave us. So we need to be, you know, to to make that localization appealing, that localization sexy. You know, we want to not have only access to things, but we want to belong to that movement, to that community. So I would say the future should be local and that the future should be measured in terms of social and ecological well-being beyond GDP. And then we need to relearn, back to the question, to learn how to live in abundance. Because in, if we start to going to have access to things, then we're going to have abundance. And we won't you know, chase scarcity with our labor or money or buying things to fill up our life. And if we have that abundance, well, maybe then we're going to be able to have that free time to allow us you know, to take care of family members, children or elders to do other things that might not be possible now to actually achieve a sustainable lifestyle because I don't think we can achieve a sustainable lifestyle if people are working eight hours or more per day stressed and so on. So, yeah, I hope (laughs) that answered the question. Mm, No, definitely.
0: And, yeah, I I think um, living in that abundance, it's interesting. I did like a 21-day-of-abundance challenge thing which I don't normally do. So that's a secret that I'm sharing on the podcast. But it was during very much in COVID time and um, every day I had to write on a post-it note, like a particular quote and they were all about abundance. So I'm just looking at my wall that's full of, um, you know, abundance and and bringing abundance into my life and all that kind of stuff. So I really appreciate you sharing that because it's kind of uh, highlighted that uh, for me and just looking and reading some of these things that I was about to take down, but I think, um, yeah, you mentioning abundance and and the way that we operate in our lives is, is really key and really key for smart communities as well because, like you said, you know, access, digital access, but also making sure that, yeah, that access is equal, right, and that we can have connectivity. You know, I'm just talking internet connectivity that's equal across the playing field for regional areas as well and then increasing that access to literacy as in digital literacy so then people know how to use it, they're comfortable using it, they can use that to work, live and play, um, connect with people like we have had to during COVID times. What things that worked and, you know, take those with us into the future and then things that, you know, didn't work we can improve on, but we really need to reflect on, you know, what we want our futures to look like and that's exactly what you were just talking about. You know that it's different to what that you know it's different to what's happening right now, and we have to believe that it's possible, right and it's not just going to happen I'm not into this necessarily like, oh yeah, if we just think it it will happen. There's steps that we need to put in place, and I think that's what you're talking about with and what you've done with the Brisbane tool Library. It's a step in the right direction that people can follow um, and you know it's being used now, but then how do we take that concept into other aspects? you know, of our lives and the different areas that we are operating in Australia um, so that they can be more local.
1: Yeah, and, and just to add one thing to that, so and then I will <laughs> listen to the next part, but Australia has also a very specific and important thing that needs to be rediscovered, and that probably is the um, Aboriginal culture. You know, we can't talk about communities without actually learning from, you know, the sustainable lifestyle and the community organisation of Aboriginal. And being, uh, you know, a migrant myself here, I think that I really also would like to pursue and understand with the due respect to these communities how they made work, you know, mm. their culture for thousands of years in a very sustainable way. Mm, no,
0: absolutely. and so, so important. And we can only learn by listening and I think asking the questions and I think that's so important so yeah thank you so much for bringing that up it's been so great to chat with you Sabrina thank you so much for coming on to the podcast thank you thanks for the invite <laughs> okay I just have one last question it's an easy one how can people connect with you
1: yeah so I have two Facebook page one is Sabrina Chakori Otherwise, if you want to look at our work of the Brisbane Tool Library on Facebook, is Brisbane Tool Library. Brisbane Tool Library is also in Twitter and in Instagram or LinkedIn. So yeah, send us an email through the website or through Facebook. And hopefully we can hear your thoughts. And I'm really happy, you know, also just to chat and try to develop more these uh, thoughts and strategies and co-learn from other people as well.
0: Thank you again, and, um, yeah, we will talk soon.
1: Thank you, Zoe. Okay, see you. Bye. The Smart
0: Community Podcast is brought to you by My Smart Community. If you're trying to deal with disruption, not sure what technologies to buy, need to facilitate genuine collaboration, then we can help. Email hello at mysmart.community or head to www.mysmart.community forward slash consulting. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community slash podcast. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community. You can also find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn and Twitter at SmartComHQ. That's com with two Ms. If you are enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we would love for you to leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears and eyes. So thank you for your support. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for.